This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Takashi Fujitani, Dr. David Chu Chair in Asia Pacific Studies, and Professor of History at the University of Toronto. Dr. Fujitani is the author most recently of Race for Empire, Koreans as Japanese and Japanese as Koreans in World War II, published by the University of California Press in 2011. Dr. Fujitani, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've published on issues ranging from imperial pageantry, of course, and splendid monarchy, to legacies of the Asia Pacific War and perilous memories, and also issues of identity and race in your more recent book, Race for Empire. So I was wondering if you could describe broadly how the Meiji period has intersected with your research over your career. Right. Uh, well, as you know, um, my first book, and in fact, my dissertation really focused on the Meiji period. And although I haven't been working on that particular period for a very long time, it's uh, constantly on my mind. And I could, I suppose you could say that it, that, that research had a really uh, formative impact on the way that I think about history in general, and uh, Japanese history in particular, and uh, modernity, and, and uh, a whole lot of other things. Uh, but the way that it intersects with my research uh, today is uh, manifold, but two, I think, that I would start with uh, are issues of nationalism and uh, imperialism. And so these are two issues that I've been thinking about for a very uh, long time and intersect with almost everything that I do. As you mentioned, there are a lot of other topics that I've been engaged in as well. But you could say that these were starting points in what I've been doing ever since. So I'm working on two different books and, well, actually probably three different books. And one is maybe we could think of it as a kind of addition to the 2011 book called The Race for Empire. And it's a kind of revisionist history of the Second World War, what I like to think of as a post-nationalist history of the Second World War. And it has a tentative title now, Who's Good War? And the idea being, rhetorically speaking, but also in terms of its substance, is that it really wasn't a very good war for almost anyone. And the basis of my being able to think through the war in this way, I think, stems in some way from the earlier work of nationalism and my critique of nationalism. Because, you know, a feeling that I've had over the long period of, of time is that uh, nationalism is one of those phenomena that has a very limiting and, in fact, deadly impact on the world in which we live. It's not only a limitation of national borders, as we're seeing in the news uh, constantly, but it's a limitation of an imagination of how we can live and understand human difference. So... Nationalism is something that I've been critiquing throughout, beginning with my work on Meiji and continuing into the Second World War period. And nationalism, in terms of this book uh, that I'm talking about now, has had a very debilitating impact on how we remember uh, the war, in my view. Uh, we remember the war generally in the United States, uh, at any rate, and to some extent other places, through kind of national uh, memory. 
in which we tend to think that the Allies were the good guys and then the Axis powers were the bad guys. And I don't mean to substitute a Japanese right-wing interpretation of the Second World War in which I would be saying that, you know, the Japanese and Americans were basically the same and good, but rather to say that this was a war of empires in which each of those empires, including the Japanese Empire and the American Empire, were striving to overcome the twin crises of capitalism and of imperialism. So they went to war with each other more because they were so alike rather than because they were so different. And this had great costs to the colonized world, which paid a, a, a huge price for their inclusion in the war itself, including the colonial soldiers who fought on for all the empires, basically, including the Japanese empires, where you have huge sacrifice made by Koreans, uh, Taiwanese, and others for the Japanese uh, war effort. But nationalism itself prevents us from understanding these kinds of similarities in the empires. And it also has this inherent problem uh, that I mentioned at the beginning. So that's one book that I'm working on that is going to be kind of, uh, I think, a, a longish book, and I could take uh, much more than the time, entire time we have to be talking about it. But let me say something else about a book that um, I'm working on right now, the one that's immediately in front of me, which will probably strike you and any other listeners who know anything about my past uh, work. I'm writing this short book on Clint Eastwood. And people generally, when I when I tell them, yes, I'm uh, writing this uh, book on Clint Eastwood, they're usually sneaker. <laughs> so I think I heard you in the background doing that. And then I um, begin to uh, talk about it a bit. Uh, and then I talk about it a bit more. And then usually they will say in the end something like, well, maybe this will be one of your books that finally sells. So I'm hoping <laughs> that that's the case. But it is a serious uh, book, and I can't, again, it has many different aspects uh, to it, and I can't talk about the uh, whole thing. Does it rotate around the flags of our fathers and letters from Iwo Jima being the other? Uh, it, it's part of it is about uh, flags of our fathers and the two films, you know, that are meant to be paired. And then I go on to some of the ones about the uh, Southeast Asia and the Korean War. And um, the one which maybe surprising, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with Asia, is his Western classic, Unforgiven. And in, in fact, I'm thinking a lot about the Westerns uh, these days and thinking about the ways in which the Westerns have never been only a product of America, that in fact, Japan in particular is very much of a formative influence in the Westerns as we know them. And the one, you know, that made Clint, the, the one Western that made Clint Eastwood uh, famous as a, a star, uh, an actor, was uh, that uh, Spaghetti Western, uh, Fistful of Dollars, which you may know uh, was modeled on uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Questions of Asia have been very much part of what I'm arguing is that it's very been part of Clint Eastwood's life. And to, to a great extent, uh, much of what he's doing is trying to take account of 
American entanglement with Asia. But anyway, uh, the, the one that I'm working on, as I said, was Unforgiven, and I'm reading it against the Japanese-Korean director Lee Sang-gil's remake of Unforgiven. So the difference is that the original takes place in the American West, and Lee Sang-gil's remake takes place in Hokkaido. Again, there's much that I'm doing in this piece that I can't talk about in full now, but just relevant to sort of a, a long way around getting back to your original question of how this work ties into the Meiji period, which it would not seem to in any way, but, which in fact it does, which is that for Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which takes place in the American uh, West, there's no engagement with the question of settler colonialism and uh, indigenous peoples in that region. Um, but Lee Sang-gil's, one of the strongest threads of his film is settler colonialism in Hokkaido and the situation of the Ainu. So what I'm trying to posit there is that the question of settler colonialism and indigeneity is such an important part of the United States in the 19th century and Japan in the 19th century. But uh, Lee Sang-gil is the one that really takes it up and has prompted me to think in different ways also about the relationship between Meiji Japan and the American West. So part of what I'm doing in this kind of strange blend of film criticism and history is to try to talk about history at the same time that I'm talking about the film and the critique of it. And it's not to say that, you know, we historians know the facts better, we know the history better, that kind of thing. But in fact, uh, what I'm trying to do is to use Lee Sang-gil's remake of the film to tell us something about history and actually the simultaneity of history as it unfolded in the 19th century in Japan and the American West. So I'm pushing against the idea of Japan in the 19th century as a kind of latecomer, a late developer to uh, modernity but really trying to think about the ways in which territorialization in particular uh, was happening at the same time and on a much grander scale in the United States and in Canada, for that matter, than what was happening in Japan. Nevertheless, the stakes were very similar and the impact upon indigenous peoples was very similar. So for this book on, uh, which is really, you know, I, I say it's about Clint Eastwood, but it's not really about Clint Eastwood himself but it's more about the cultural production of Clint Eastwood, how it reflects much about the American imagination of the nation of race, indigeneity, and uh, empire. Um, so, but what I take away from this is really that the simultaneity of the 19th century in Japan and the United States. And so it, this, this mode, I think, that I'm working in now makes me go back to the Meiji period and think about it in a somewhat a different kind of way. So if you think about like the um, Wounded Knee Massacre in South Dakota, the great massacre of the Lakota people, uh, that takes place in 1890, which is the same year as the uh, when the Meiji Constitution goes into effect. So, the, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to bring together these two histories 
by thinking not only through what we commonly call primary materials or materials from that period, but also through a kind of rethinking through film and other kinds of sources. I'm curious. There's certainly a lot of parallels, and you know the, the fact that you have American advisors who are brought over to Hokkaido to kind of uh, lead the settler colonialism of that area with agriculture, but then also the emphasis on development or kaitaku in, in Hokkaido, the kind of constructing railways and public works as a way to claim territory, seems very similar to what happens in the American West. Yeah, so th- that's part of the story as well, and as you. Uh, mentioned, I think, you know, people have been working uh, these days on that connection between American and Canadian thinkers and advisors in Hokkaido, what should be done. Clearly, there's a way in which the management of indigeneity was taking place globally at exactly the same time that you have the formation of a world system made up of nation states and colonies. But we often forget, too often forget, that it's not nation states and colonies alone, but also the treatment of indigenous peoples. And in in fact, the invention of that very uh, category of of understanding that is taking place in this period. So I do see really a strong connection between the U.S. and Japan in this period and up to now, really. And it's a timely moment to remember that, too, with the 150th anniversary of the incorporation of Hokkaido coming up next year. Right. Yeah. And uh, so this is one of the interesting things, since we are both located in uh, Canada these days, you know, that um, 150th anniversary of Canadian Confederation uh, and the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration coming in exactly the same academic year. Again, is a kind of pointer to the ways in which the histories of North America, uh, Japan, and Asia, and other places in the world are have been so closely tied together, and 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 it also points to the fact that we too often don't recognize those kinds of connections. I wanted to go back to this question about nationalism and imperialism that you're talking about the, the kind of two of these strands coming together, and. I was thinking as you're talking, maybe because of nationalism and certainly because of hindsight of World War II, whenever we talk about nationalism in the case of Japan, thinking ahead maybe into the 1930s, we talk about nationalism as something that's dangerous. But then maybe during the Meiji period, there's this kind of talk of of nationalism and imperialism that is maybe seen in a more positive light. I mean, are they different or what happens in between that causes such a different reaction? Right. You know, the assessment of nationalism, I think, needs to operate in different registers. And uh, just like history, I think, needs to be thought of in different uh, registers. So uh, nationalism, for some, may appear to be a good thing. Nationalism, for others, at exactly the same moment, would not seem to be a good thing. And then similarly, from period to period, it would seem to be a negative thing or a positive thing, depending upon the time and the position of the person speaking. So uh, it's it's often the case that people will talk about nationalism as say, a good good nationalism, and often called patriotism, uh, and then a sort of an ultra nationalism or nationalism gone berserk. But to me, there's a kind of berserkness to nationalism from the onset. So 
I understand the issue of when when a people is threatened, say by imperialism, as Japan was in the 19th century, one response to that could be nationalism, and nationalism could be anti-colonial. But I think what we're finding increasingly is that now we need to come to grips with the price of nationalism, and that even in those moments when nationalism seems to be a healthy response, it carries with it a certain kinds of certain kind of logics that have a lot of very negative repercussions. And some of those I spoke of at the very uh, beginning, but the limits of our imagination, the limits of the ways in which we can think beyond national borders, the ties of nationalism to uh, racism, the kind of present moment of America first, or it could be Japan first, it could be Canada first, France first, whatever it might be, that these are all parts of uh, nationalism, whether uh, one would regard it as healthy uh, or not. And the other thing is uh, that I've sometimes been asked is, okay, so if you're a critic of nationalism, what would you have done in 1968? And I said, well, in a way, it's an obscene question, but it's kind of a, a ridiculous question as well, because I'm not there in 1868. Uh, I'm here now. And I'm, I'm here now, and, and I think what's most important is how do we understand the history of nationalism now? How, because that's what we should be doing as historians, understanding history as a history of the present. What is history going to tell us for how we live now? Um, it's going to, you know, obviously it's going to tell us something about how we live, how people have lived in the past, but once for example, Japan has avoided becoming colonized by the Western powers, then it's that same nationalism that lives on today. So we need to think about, even at that moment when it seemed like a good idea, uh, what are some of the problems that grew out of it? And, and then you see the Hibiya riots of 1905, or maybe popular celebrations at the end of the Russo-Japanese War, or 10 years earlier, the Sino-Japanese War. I mean, some people would say that there's a straight line between those expressions nationalistic expressions and, say, fascism in the 1930s. But, I mean, that doesn't seem like the same kind of nationalism, or is it? Well, I think um, some people are trying to make a strong case for the uh, singularity of this phenomenon that we call uh, fascism. But I think that the elements of fascism are already there in nationalism that in a lot of ways that fascism grows out of the contradictions of capitalism and the inability to deal with social and economic contradictions. And then those worst elements of nationalism come to provide a kind of core to how to overcome those contradictions. So this could be uh, when we talk about the crisis of uh, representations. It could be about how the nation becomes the center of fascist imagination in most places that we know, including in Japan. Fascism is also tends to be associated with tight control over the ways that people live, the kind of uh, freedoms that they have. But I think that's very much tied up with nationalism uh, itself. There are certain ways in which, uh, despite the rhetoric of freedom, there are limitations imposed upon 
uh, free subjects in even a liberal uh, nation uh, state. Um, and uh, that continues into the period of fascism. So I don't see fascism so much as a completely distinct phenomenon, but an extreme version of what goes wrong with uh, nationalism during a crisis of the economy. And I'm wondering if World War I maybe delegitimized nationalism. Before that, imperialism and war in general is seen kind of as this gentlemanly sport. But then World War I comes along, and then it seems like any sort of nationalist expression afterwards is seen as something suspicious or perhaps nefarious. You, you mean uh, throughout the world, or do you mean in, uh, in Japan? Or? I'd say around the world, but particularly from we as contemporary historians, when we talk about expressions of nationalism in Japan post-1914 or post-1919 in particular, it, then it slides into this narrative of Japanese fascism. And so then people would say, like, well, you know, as early as 1880s, 1890s, you can find these antecedents for fascism. Well, again, I think it depends on where you're positioned, where one was positioned within the social political formation at the time. In the colonies, as we know, the World War I period was precisely the moment for the valorization of anti-colonial nationalism. So I think that's one issue. I, uh, I, I think I know what you're driving at that with in Europe, say, this problem of nationalism and the way that it was seen as being largely responsible for these uh, nations going to war with each other. And there's a spirit of scholarship on nationalism and, uh, as a religion and the, the problems with it and so forth. So I think globally there is uh, something uh, like that. I don't know if we, we see the same thing in uh, Japan, uh, par partly because Japan, although it's involved in the First World War, doesn't see the full effects of it domestically in the same way that European countries uh, saw it, and, and Europe and, and its uh, dominions really saw it. I had two questions in mind about nationalism. I mean, of course, the one that comes to mind is this accusation that Japan is currently seeing a rise of neo-nationalism. Right. What we can also talk about as neo-racism. There's uh, no doubt that ever since at least the 1990s, there's been a, a strong element of people on uh, the right in uh, Japan who've been dissatisfied with the same sorts of things that people in the United States on the right were dissatisfied about, uh, more critical treatment of Japan's uh, history and what Japanese neo-nationalists call, you know, the masochistic view of history, right? So that's been going on for some time now. And uh, I think it has something to do with globalization and the response to it on the part of the right wing. It has something to do with the economic downturn and the way that nationalism is so often invoked to compensate for economic problems that people 
often in very disprivileged positions, economically often resort to nationalism and racism in order to find some kind of solace or compensation in recognition of their own economic situation. So I'm I'm not sure how much contemporary criticism we're supposed to go into or not go into, but there's a a pairing of Trump and Abe, right? A, A kind of representation of a nationalistic imagination at this moment in uh, in history. Why was it that Abe was the first one to go to see Trump um, after the inauguration? Why was it that Abe uh, was invited to make a speech to a joint session of Congress uh, not long ago, a couple years ago, I guess? That, and these are all ways in which they're reaffirming their uh, vision of America first and Japan first, but with recognition of subordination to the United States. I mean, that's, I, I think, the, if I can be completely blunt, I think the real right-wingers in Japan, who I don't mean to praise, would be critical of Abe for kowtowing too much to the United States. But he's mm-hmm. doing it through a certain type of right-wing uh, nationalism, in my view. And it's an interesting thing, and just to go back briefly to the Clint Eastwood book and the uh, letters from Iwo Jima by Clint Eastwood. Uh, that, again, is part of a strategy of reinforcing the relationship between Japan and the United States in the Asia-Pacific with a recognition that somehow, you know, the war we fought with each other and America never wants to say that America was in the wrong in any way in that war. But on the Japanese side, they're trying to say in that film and elsewhere in right-wing discourse that despite any problems that you may think about with that war, the Japanese people did what they thought was in the best interests of the war. And this is where nationalism again kicks in, where they're saying we were just trying to do what was the best for our country. The United States, they were doing, trying to do the best what they could for their country. And so we were kind of equal. They were what Carl Schmitt called just enemies. They fight each other in the war. And then when it's all over, they're supposed to get along with each other again. And that's the kind of performance that Abe has been trying to uh, sustain during uh, his period in office. And it doesn't seem like he has any other solution outside of that, although politicians outside of Japan are trying to really rethink what what their relationships with the United States should be. So here again, I think neo-nationalism in Japan and particularly Abe's relationship to it is a huge cost actually to the people of Japan, even though they may be thinking that he's looking out for their interests. It's in a way He's looking out for their short-term interests, but not in terms of long-term policy in which they'd finally become a really an independent uh, sovereign state, which I don't think Japan is at this point. When we put the Meiji Restoration into the international perspective and maybe look at the Restoration from the region as a whole, what is the impact of the Restoration on the rest of East Asia? Right. Well, you know, again, uh, this is uh, a huge topic. One can say many things about the Meiji Restoration and its impact upon the rest of East Asia and the rest of the world, for that matter. So how do we think about the past in a complicated way in which we can 
point out to certain things that might be useful for thinking without necessarily completely regarding them as good or bad, uh, negative or positive. But how can we think through the major restoration, the major period to arrive at ways of thinking about issues today? So one of the big issues that comes out of the Meiji Restoration and the decision that is made at that point is how how are the Japanese leaders and intellectuals going to position themselves vis-a-vis the rest of Asia, right? So for somebody like Fukuzawa Yukichi, who writes about Datsuaron getting out of Asia, he's going to side, makes a decision to model what Japan should become more on the European-American model of the capitalist uh, nation-state. And that includes his advocacy of the Japanese monarchy, the reforming the Japanese market monarchy, making it the symbol of the Japanese nation. So he's a strong uh, liberal advocate of Tennose, the emperor system, which tells us quite a few things. Uh, One uh, is the limitations of liberalism, the problems of liberalism in uh, the 19th century, both internal to Japan and as part of the formation of Japanese colonialism and colonialism throughout the world. It used to be a time, I think, when liberalism was seen as being antithetical to uh, imperialism, but now we can see clearly both from work done on European liberalism and British liberalism especially, uh, but other liberalisms and on liberalism in uh, Japan that it was not at all antithetical to colonialism. It served as a kind of springboard for colonialism. So when we go to the, back to the, your original question about the Meiji restoration and its impact upon the rest of Asia, one thing that could be said for certain is that the Meiji restoration and the Meiji period, with uh, the Meiji formation, which came out of that, was a formation modeled largely on Europe. It is a formation that allowed for the development of Japan as an imperial power with colonies. And that's not to say that it was just mimicry, because I, I don't think that, you know, or I do think that this kind of lets Japanese off the hook in terms of what they did to the other countries. But it is to say that a decision was made in the interests of Japan at that time, as understood by these leaders, to go the way of liberal empires. And so that that's one way that I would think about it. Uh, of course, we could think of so many other uh, ways that are somewhat different. And one of the ways in which we could think of it as somewhat different is more global than East Asia regional. So we know that in the late 19th century, but uh, into the 20th century, and especially with Japan's victory over uh, Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, that uh, Japan began to serve in some unexpected and I think misunderstood ways as the leader of the non-white races of the world. And, And this was something that people like Du Bois took up in his writings. And so Japan served as a kind of inspiration for how other peoples who were colonized or under threat of being colonized could liberate themselves from Western imperialism. So 
there's a discourse, you know, that goes throughout the world to Africa and other places under um, European domination. The problem, of course, is that Japan, as I've been saying, was really no different from the other empires. So that model of Japan uh, was a kind of a dead-end model. But some things can come out of that. So I was just at a, a workshop in UC Irvine organized by a new consortium in Black Studies at, in the University of California. And one of the engagements there, led by uh, Nahum Chandler, is about Blackness in the Asian century. So to some extent, going back to the Meiji period and later, thinking about what Du Bois called the color line in the modern world, we could go back to Asia more largely, but Japan in particular, to rethink how people understood that, uh, recuperate what we think might be useful now, and then to criticize what we think uh, went wrong in that period. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.